China is not in sync with the rest of the world. And I think this last COVID upheaval on the stock markets in North America and China uh, show two different stories. China has essentially been flat, slightly down. And uh, we know that we've experienced a massive roller coaster here. So from a portfolio management perspective, an asset allocation perspective, China offers a, a non-synchronous approach to, to balancing a portfolio. You're about to hear the second part of my conversation with Peter Craig from Power Corporation. We talk about their approach to the public equity market in China, what they look for in investors, bringing public equity and private equity mindset to that public equity, the future of China, and we finish with some recommendations. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKinsey Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm excited to have an extra special guest today. His name is Peter Kreit. Peter is here to talk to us about Power Corporation's investments in China. Uh, Peter is currently the Senior Advisor to Power Corporation of Canada. He is also the Chairman of Power Pacific Corp. He joined Power back in 1981 and has held several positions at the firm. Outside of Power, he has several board experience where he was the Chairman of the Canadian-China Business Council from 2003 to 2018 and sits on uh, boards uh, focused on hospital, education, energy, media. His resume is impressive and indeed very long. It would be an entire episode to go through all of it. That's the perfect uh, segue to actually get back into the uh, discussion on uh, the QP status and and thinking about how to put together an investment team to really um, invest on behalf of, of you in the Chinese markets. Uh, you've referenced how different China is, uh, and to be successful there, uh, you have to appreciate the local culture and the history. Um, and earlier, you had said that you had established a team um, that is solely comprised of uh, of locals in Shanghai, um, which sounds like those those two points are related. How did you find the specific individuals that you hired there, and, and what characteristics were you looking for? Um, both from an individual perspective and the way that they think about uh, markets and investing? It's, a, it's, a, it's an important question. Um, I think, it, I think uh, China has a stock market which is very volatile. It has a lot of ups and downs, a lot of momentum to it. And uh, that scares a lot of people. Uh, the but the bulk of the trades that occur in the stock market in China are individual traders. And if you look at the wallet of the Chinese as a whole, the amount of money that is actually in the stock market is not nearly as high as it is in other, in other societies. So it is more on the margin of the share of wallet. The Chinese actually are very pragmatic. If you look at the bank, the bank deposits, if you look at their investments in real estate, that's where their first dollars are going. And their marginal dollars, if they have those, uh, are, are going into the stock market. And that's why they are taking a, uh, a higher risk when they, when they invest in it. And that's why they have uh, strategies which are not terribly akin to what uh, would be uh, at PowerCore. 
we like to understand the businesses in detail. Uh, we like to spend a lot of time. We like to watch it. We like to understand the management and meet the management. And that's the kind of investor that we wanted to have uh, running our portfolio. So it took a long time and a lot of people before we found uh, those that were having a similar like-minded approach to, to investing. And I guess we characterized it as uh, investing in, in public equities with a private equity uh, approach. Uh, obviously, we didn't get handed a, a deck uh, to start with. We had to create our own decks. And obviously, we didn't have uh, credibility in the marketplace at the beginning and uh, and and stature of, of investment size that would allow us to meet with the senior most people. But we met with the people in the companies and as time has gone on, and as we've done our research and being able to have conversations with uh, with leaders of these companies where we would actually share some of our knowledge about their companies because we didn't done our own research, that put us into in, into a much better position to uh, to to have that kind of dialogue and to be reinvited back and and uh, to be well well respected in those uh, those conversations, even though our the size of our our commitment to those companies wasn't going to be as large as some other players. So we found people um, who actually had a very fundamental approach to to investing, and we uh, we used. Uh, we used external support to uh, train people. Uh, we used uh, we used Bain Consulting at one point to uh, to come in and, and give such sessions on how to do analysis of, of businesses and how to how to uh, how to do uh, verifying third party tri- you know triangulating data to make sure that what you you were hearing was actually uh, made sense and you could corroborate it in other ways. Uh, we we uh, we spent a lot of, of time in the early days uh, developing that uh, skill set, and I think it's now part of the culture of the of the team that's there. And while everybody is is Chinese, I would say 80% of those that uh, that are working with us have got a, an MBA from one of the top you know, 10 schools in the, in North America, uh, and uh, and the rest are of the top schools of, of China. So they have. They've they've got the the cross cultural expertise to be able to dialogue with us and and uh, it's a, it's very engaging kind of conversations to uh, to talk about businesses uh, that we we look at from time to time. I'm I'm curious. Um, you referenced earlier again the uniqueness of the Chinese culture. It sounds like you've spent a lot of time in China. It sounds like you've done a lot of work in understanding that culture, that history. When you're speaking with the the team in Shanghai, uh, who has also had the cross culture um, experience of going to MBA schools, as you said, in the Western schools, uh, how much do you find that you're both flexing to sort of meet each other in in uh, in the way that you think, in the way that you approach things, and and how much has sort of become uh, call it more normalized between the two of you? Both coming together with the shared experience. I think I think we 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 are uh, we work well together and we complement each other because of our own idiosyncrasies. So uh, many times the 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 growth of businesses in China is to infinity, which we know is not going to be the case. Uh, All right. So we've seen. 
we've seen the sort of those movies before and uh and uh and and yet on on, on uh, in other situations the the approach that chinese business has taken to to building their their structures is is very different than than north america and we have to get over that because we're not the only uh, the only uh civilization that has 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 technological technological expertise if you look at the way they deal with their with the internet uh it's completely different than us uh the, the the all their communication all their chats all their videos every every uh everything they do they do on the same platform uh and and it's extremely extremely powerful they've been able to just a very simple thing they've been able to send money to each other split a bill for for dinner for 10 years you know this is right. something that's relatively new here um, so we have to learn about how the Chinese have adapted and taken technology to the next to the next level. You know, if if uh, if Huawei uh, has uh, got its start by, you know, um, borrowing to put it politely, the technology from Cisco, uh, they didn't stop and wait for Cisco to develop more technology. They just built that. They took that as their foundation and grew in, into all sorts of different areas from there. So uh, we 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 uh, we're learning at the same time as we're 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 challenging, and we we understand the the market's uh, reaction to 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 certain products and and to the and and but most of the businesses that we're looking at are purely Chinese businesses developing uh, their markets in China with only a a, a modest uh, exposure to 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 the outside their their borders. But the Chinese market is still so huge. And there's so right. much growth opportunity there for these companies that they 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 they're going there and they will go there and this little, this little company uh, uh, Sanyi uh, will, will 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 definitely show up on 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 our screens here uh, in due course. But uh, they've got great markets there, great markets. And and so when you're analyzing these companies, um, it sounds like most of them that you're looking at domestic focused. Um, what unique characteristics would be uh, somewhat, I guess, different from examining a domestic-focused country uh, company in the in the U.S.? Um, is there, you know, I think I'm thinking now of you know the ability to rely on data and reporting, um, the ability right. to double-check that. Like, what what does that process look like, and how, and how does that differ from a traditional North American investment? Well, we we always want to be able to rely on on financial numbers, and uh, the the we we like to see the companies that we invest in uh, audited by you know the big four to the extent that that's possible. Um, right. We we need uh, we need to corroborate uh, the, uh, the the numbers, and we do so by talking with not only suppliers but also customers. So we we have a sense of of the numbers that are being talked about that being being correct. Um, we try to identify who's, who's who's you know powerful in the in the, in the distribution channels who, who dictate price. Um, sometimes we have information uh, more information in China than than we have typically in in the United States or Canada. Uh, some of the some of the real estate companies uh, ironically would provide monthly information about 
how much uh, how much they've uh, they've built, how much they've sold, uh, uh, how much what deposits they've taken on a month on a monthly basis. Uh, uh, obviously, that, that that gets rolled up into into quarterly uh, statements. Um, again, ironically, they do they do quarterly reports in China, but in 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 Hong Kong, it's the the, it's the British calendar where they get it they get it twice a year. Uh, so it's it's uh, there's an, there's uh, the China is 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 migrating uh, to you know international rules as uh, in terms of accounting, but there are still some uh, some differences. Um, we we it's not the biggest problem that we've got in trying to understand companies, but uh, it's it's something that we should we never we never lose sight of. We need to make sure that that the numbers are there. We we. In, in you know, ten years ago, I think uh, there was a company called Sino Forest, which was heavily invested by a number of, of Canadian companies. This was this was a company that we this was a type of business that we had seen, not Sino Forest per se, but other businesses like that that we looked at, and we just could not get ourselves comfortable with understanding the underlying information that was behind it, and so we just we walked away from it. So the things that we don't understand. We don't really, we don't waste time trying to understand things that we're never going to get the kind of corroboration that we want. I, we don't really understand non-performing loans of a bank of China, and uh, you know, are they really non-performing? What was the test that they were doing? There's not a lot of transparency on things like that, so that would make it very difficult for us to uh, to invest in uh, in that kind of uh, banking business. Uh, if it's a credit card business, we'd be much more comfortable. How much uh, of the market um, right now in China, given the reporting and given your comfort, uh, would you say is uninvestable from your perspective? It's there's so well. First, I think the the it isn't a problem. I mean, if you look at the financial services industry in China in terms of market cap, and financial services uh, strangely includes real estate. It's, not just banks, but it's uh, banks, life insurance companies, and securities companies. It's also real estate, so it's a little bit of a different de- de- definition. Uh, it's about fifty percent of of the market cap, um, but it, the market is 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 the second largest market in stock market in in the world with a lot more uh, vol- not a volume of, of of trade. So it, there's no shortage for us of companies of Good size, in other words, for companies where liquidity that we we want to have, uh, if we wanted to dispose in two three days of our entire position, that we could do that. Uh, there's just not a lack of of, of companies that uh, allows us to uh, to do it. So it's not it's not a problem. Uh, but but we would take out you know the we would we would not consider some of the big the big financial players just because we didn't understand them. Makes sense. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about the structure of of um, the Power Pacific Investment Management. Um, it's it's a fairly unique structure. Um, maybe take me through first of all what the structure is and, and why you decided to to arrange it that way. Um, so the 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 Q fee that we have is actually a direct holding of power because the 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 rules and regulations in China require that it be the top company that 
that have the the fee that's being relaxed since then, and now uh, subsidiaries could have their own in their own right uh, fees. Um, in terms of our investment in uh, China AMC, uh, that was more dependent on the fact that uh, we were the only company that was known in China. Our subsidiaries were not really known because they weren't doing any business mm-hmm. at the time. So we we held that as well. Uh, the, the structures that you're referring to well, really, I think, are, are more related to the days when we had uh, uh, direct investments in operating businesses there, um, like Moldavde, like our investment in the roads uh, and the land, and uh, so we, and then our our investment in in Pacific Pacific. So we 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 just separated them by holding them in in, in various entities. But there wasn't anything that was uh, there wasn't any any greater uh, greater okay. uh, reason than than uh, to have that kind of a structure. It was not no. Fair enough. Um, and uh, and recently, uh, I mean, the Chinese market has opened a, a fair amount um, for foreign investments, where um, the QP status is uh, is not uh, required in order to to invest directly. Um, you can do that through the the two uh, Connect uh, programs. Um, you've also uh, taken uh, your your investment organization that you have there. Uh, and it was previously just running sort of family uh, money or power money, uh, and you're you're expanding uh, distribution of that. What's behind that decision? Well, uh, we, with great amount of caution and, and a number of years of, uh, of experience, we we decided that uh, we should leverage the uh, knowledge set that we've got and the team that we've got in uh, in Shanghai. And uh, and uh, attempt to attract uh, third-party money, and uh, we we when we look at the the others that are investing in the stock market in in China that we have access to uh, in terms of their numbers, we find ourselves uh, quite different and quite unique. Uh, from our perspective, it's appealing, obviously, because it's our investment discipline, our investment philosophy, uh, but. Right. We take we have basically half the the volatility of uh, of all the other players with uh, the same or better returns, and that makes us feel feel very very comfortable about uh, offering this opportunity to 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 others. And uh, number two, China is not in sync with the rest of the world, and I think this last COVID. Uh, upheaval on the stock markets uh, uh, in North America and China uh, show two different stories. Uh, China has essentially been flat, slightly down, and uh, we know that we've experienced a massive roller coaster here. So, from a from a, uh, a portfolio management perspective, an asset allocation perspective, China offers a uh, a uh, a non-synchronous uh, approach to 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 balancing a portfolio, and I think that that's right. got a lot of value to to people who are looking to uh, to to find that kind of thing in their portfolio. Yeah, and uh, lowly correlated assets are generally very uh, much covered coveted uh, from active managers and people building portfolios. Um, 
if we look at the institutional investing landscape, um, there is, you know, by any metric, if you think about China, you mentioned uh, second largest stock market, uh, second largest GDP, it's about a fifth of GDP, represents uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of um, of uh, 40% of the GDP growth over the past 10 years. Uh, large market, lots of opportunities, but yet institutional investors are significantly underweight, um, really on any metric. Uh, and as you said, appealing qualities to it. Why do you think that the institutional investors have not migrated more to China uh, until now? Do you mean the foreign institutional investors? Or do you mean the Yes. I mean foreign. The foreign. Foreign. Well, you know, China is complicated, uh, and uh, it takes a, it takes a long time to get in, and to and a lot of a lot of companies want to get in on their own terms, with their own kind of control. Uh, they don't want to have partners. Uh, as they do, they don't want to be minority stakes. Uh, they want to be majority stakes. So there are some 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 companies that would just not even consider to 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 do things in country in, in China if. In that sector, they could not be the uh, the, uh, the controlling entity, uh, which I, I totally understand. I think it's it's reasonable, and it's probably what those companies do everywhere else in in the world. Um, China, as everyone says, is different, and China is a is a huge market potential. Uh, and and so uh, developing a strategy from our perspective uh, that allows you to enter cautiously and step by step, uh, getting to know the, the the way Chinese do business and having the Chinese get to know how you do business, uh, we thought it was is, is a good is a good approach. But but it's not for everyone. It's not for everyone clearly. And I think if you look at Canadians in general. Uh, the sophisticated institutional markets in Canada are probably more awake to China than their colleagues in the U.S. Uh, there isn't a lot of knowledge about the the investment opportunities, in, in, in generally speaking, in, in the U.S. We're, we're we're surprised to to to, to learn that, um, and and if there would be maybe an exposure through emerging market sort of allocation, but the actual allocation that ends up being China is not very significant. If you look at CPPIB, you know, uh, successive CEOs there have said that China should be uh, part of the pro their own portfolio that reflects their share of global GDP. Well, right. that is a massive invest in, in investment in China by them if they ever get close to doing that. Um, you know, uh, each each of the big pension funds are are, are knowledgeable, are sophisticated uh, investors uh, when it comes to when it comes to China. So I think Canadians can uh, uh, should benefit uh, long term by 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 that exposure and uh, through 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 those pension plans. Right, and and you, you made the comment that the U.S. counterparts seem to be uh, less exposed to that. Um, is is your theory on that? Like, is it just unfamiliar? It's it's something that they haven't turned their attention to. I mean, access was difficult until uh, fairly recently. Um, different culture, as, you, as you've referenced, it's 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 a lot of effort in order to to make that first step. Is that sort of 
thesis there? It's a lot of effort and the risk for, by individual portfolio managers and, and boards that are overseeing this kind of investment to, to make that kind of jump is, is taking a risk. And so you'll see that the endowments funds, uh, the Yales, uh, the, the Harvards, the Stanfords, uh, uh, they have the ability to take that kind of risk and have taken that risk. And they've been very early in, in China. I mean, we didn't talk about it before, but you know, we, we were, we were part of some, some venture, uh, portfolios in, uh, in China alongside of all those endowments. And, uh, and uh, we, we, we did quite well with, with them. And that was to provide us at power with an exposure to what was the high tech sector doing in, in China. But it gave us also an opportunity to see that, that there was some very, uh, I wouldn't say aggressive, I would say thoughtful, uh, but engaged uh, uh, endowment money that, uh, that, that was well, uh, doing very, very well in, in China. I'd love to transition, I guess, to the future of China. Uh, so where we stand today, um, there's uh, obviously, we, you referenced uh, COVID-19, the, the pandemic. Uh, China's um, stock market economy held up uh, reasonably well, I'd say, or relatively well, uh, perhaps is a better way mm-hmm. of uh, putting it. Uh, do you think that this will improve their relative position in sort of global markets and, and, uh, and sort of financial uh, markets in general? Well, the Chinese uh, were absolutely shocked in 2007-2008 when the the U.S. financial market fell apart because China was building its market on the model of the U.S. So that was a first uh, lesson for the Chinese that they may have to take their own look at what their market should should be. Um, trade. Uh, trade wars have, have also reminded the Chinese that they need to establish uh, capacities where they have uh, dependencies on on other other countries, particularly the the, the U.S. Um, and I think this this COVID nineteen uh, is. Uh, is yet to be fully understood, I think, by by everyone. Uh, obviously, there's a question about whether we've got the right kind of data from coming from China. But I can sure. know that that the interface between uh, scientists in Canada and scientists in Wuhan, uh, the engagement there was very very positive, very transparent, and very helpful to us in getting in getting organized. So. You know, there are different levels uh, as in any any situation of uh, of interface, and uh, I think that, uh, that that China is becoming the the scape not the scapegoat, but because because obviously the the, the issues began in China, but uh, if 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 we fail in other countries outside of China as a result of a virus that came from China, I'm worried that you know China will probably bear a fair amount of the, the, the aggression uh, on, on this. And that'll, that will, which they may have well have earned. I'm, I'm not, I don't take a, a, a position on it. I'm just saying that I think that many countries are going to feel that uh, they, uh, they owe this problem to, uh, to their openness with, uh, with China. 
and uh, you know, many things in China are closed, and probably this is one of the things that the rest of the world would have wanted to have closed as well. Uh, right. That wasn't the case, and I think that we have to relearn in, uh, in in all our worlds what it is like to have an integrated integrated economy when it comes to yeah. these kind of things. I mean, Bill Gates certainly talked about this years ago, and uh, and uh, I think he's the kind of leader that uh, that uh, that we should be listening to in terms of how do we think through managing this kind of a problem. He's very he's very careful in what he says, though he doesn't offend very many people. He's good. To stay on that same theme, um, you had referenced the, the trade wars and, and sort of the integrated global economy uh, and the what is a threat to it, I guess, uh, what we've seen the past several years. Um, China historically has been uh, very ingrained in supply chains uh, for, for global companies, sort of the engine of, of uh, globalization and, and manufacturing, at least. Um, how much of a risk does this uh, potentially posed to to China, maybe specifically, and then uh, I guess expanded out to the global economy. Well, anytime you buy something that you don't have, but you don't manufacture, you've got uh, a dependency, and uh, I think that uh, we are going to have to re-examine whether how we feel about those dependencies, um, particularly in the light of you know countries. I mean, the, the, when when 3M was told by the president of the United States, uh, no masks for can for anybody in the world. Um, that was uh, that was uh, the same kind of uh, kind of reaction that uh, that gives you uh, sort of chills uh, because it uh, calls into question all your supply chains. Uh, I think that there's going to be a rejuggling. I think we do. We have supply chains because economically they make a lot of sense. Um, sure. They they evolve. I mean, China is a producer of a lot of things, but they've moved a lot of production to to Vietnam because it's lower cost. So then right. they become dependent on you know on, on Vietnam for certain things. Um, we have to we have to I think uh, as Canadians we have to be a little more strategic and have these questions answered as to what is in our national interest and how do we make sure that we can supply Canadians with what they need. And, uh, and if it's going to end up costing us more, uh, we have to explain that and, and make those cases uh, to be able to guarantee some, uh, some security. That's a trade-off. And uh, we haven't had that kind of a conversation before. But I think it, it forces, you know, COVID has forced the world together in a way, but I think it also has forced the world to think uh, as individual countries, as sovereign countries, a little bit as well. And uh, so I, it, it, uh, we'll see where it goes. I'm not an expert on that. Yeah. Interesting. Based on your, on your comments uh, uh, regarding the supply chain and, and uh, thinking about supply chains uh, for uh, both China, Canada, the, the rest of the, the globe, um, it strikes me that there's going to be, uh, or it's possible that there'd be a decoupling where we would start seeing lower correlation uh, between different uh, countries uh, based on supply chain, based on domestic economy and, and what they choose to, to utilize uh, uh, globally. Um, do you think that China, uh, that, that decoupling of um, economic returns and, and financial returns 
uh, is going to be particularly pronounced in China, given uh, where it is in the development of its uh, domestic economy? No, and I think that China is doing the decoupling themselves. I mean, they, like I said, they started doing it in, uh, in 2008 when the financial systems uh, collapse in, 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 in North America. Uh, they've been decoupling themselves. So I think it's, it's, uh, it's, I think the, the, in, uh, the different countries will be able to absorb this. Uh, I think in Canada, you know, it's, it's like the second level problem. The first level problem is is having a strategy vis-a-vis China, having a strategy vis-a-vis the U.S. And then once you've got that strategy, what is your plan B if you have uh, ch- uh, supply chain uh, risks uh, that uh, that of being cut off? So how do you deal with that? So it's the real the first question is what are what are the right areas in which we should begin engaged in with China? That are that is in the interest of Canada that we should be focusing on, and then when we do that, that creates by default a, a, a dependency, codependencies, and how do we how do we manage that if it, those codependencies if they if they fall apart or if they get if they get uh, impacted uh, in part? I think I think those are the kind of questions that we would look to our governments to 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 think about and to come up with uh, with good uh, good strategies. Thanks very much for that. Very insightful. We always conclude these podcasts by uh, getting a series of recommendations from you. Uh, so I'll uh, <laughs> ask you a couple things to, to recommend. Uh, why don't we start with uh, some of your favorite books? Oh, gosh. Um, I think that the first thing that you need to read about isn't actually a book. If you want to understand China from a, an economic perspective, the first thing that you need to read is the five-year plan that China is engaged with. And, and then you should study the, the, the previous five-year plan to see to what extent they achieved that. Um, and I think it's important to understand the leaders uh, in China and what they've, what they've done. Um, I think the, the Canadian, one of the Canadian experts on China that I love to, to talk to is a professor at the uh, UBC called he is uh, a uh, an eclectic individual who uh, speaks fluent Mandarin and uh, is uh, an expert on on trade and the respect of trade agreements with uh, with by, by China um, he actually teaches business uh, business individuals who want to negotiate with China he he role plays and teaches them how to manage to, to learn how to deal with that with Chinese. Um, he has a very thoughtful uh, view of uh, China. So anything you can read that Stephen uh, Potter writes, I think, is, uh, is interesting. Um, sorry, sorry, his name again? Pittman, P-I-T-M-A-N. I'll put two T's. Pittman. Um, okay. Pittman Potter, and uh, and. Uh, I should just find a book of it. Uh, and you know, what else would I suggest? Um, Doesn't have to be China related, just uh, fiction, nonfiction, finance, anything you'd like. Uh, I'll, 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 I'll leave it at that if I can. Sure, I think course. one of the greatest. I think one of the greatest. I think one of the greatest uh, architects of China who doesn't get talked a lot about anymore. 
because uh, his, his time has passed and because he wasn't looking for, for the spotlight. But he was a true engineer of, uh, of modern China in terms of the execution of it. And that's Zhu Rongji. So he was a, he was okay. the premier of China. And uh, I think he's one of the most fascinating uh, designers of, uh, of the success of, of, of China. Great. Anything about him um, interesting. Perfect. Uh, it sounds like you've visited uh, China a fair amount over over your career. Uh, what's your favorite region of China? You know, China is like a huge country, uh, not unlike Canada. <laughs> it's got sure. very diverse places. Uh, uh, you know, uh, the Shangri-La of uh, of China is uh, is Lijian. They're actually two competing cities, but. Uh, that call themselves uh, Shangri-La. Uh, Lijian has got five streams that are running through it and uh, has a very uh, uh, beautiful uh, culture. Uh, it actually has a, a matriarchal culture uh, where the oh. women are in charge. And uh, uh, it's a place that uh, that was not sort of disturbed by, by wars. It was kind of out of, tucked away in the hills out of way, but it's it's quite unusual to see the uh, the fact that men are just sort of hanging around, and the women are literally carrying the the loads, the bricks, whatever. But they also are, <laughs> you know, design the uh, what's going on. The the uh, you know fathers are not really fathers unless the mothers decide to let them let them know that they're the fathers. They're, 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 it's really a total, unusual and matriarchal society. They have a an, uh, an an orchestra that uh, that that plays Nashi music, uh, and the uh, been there a number of times to to see them play, and the youngest I think in the orchestra is about eighty, uh, but it's a very oh, wow. uh, it's a lo- <laughs> lovely lovely to see lovely to see. So that's one of the great places. Of course, Tibet is a is, is fantastic to to see if you have a chance. I always wanted to take a motorcycle trip around Tibet. I haven't done that yet, and. Um, and uh, you know uh, the uh, the Silk Road towards uh, towards Urmuchi uh, is, uh, is uh, Donghua is a very uh, interesting place where the uh, the very wealthy uh, merchants uh, had put uh, shrines and in, in, carved into the, the rock face uh, religious religious shrines and. Uh, uh, just on the edge of the on the edge of the desert, um, it's another another place. Xi'an has got yeah. to be a, a, a great place to, to visit, obviously with the, the terracotta soldiers, and uh, and also right. a, a mosque, which is uh, which is uh, a must see. And uh, and the first trip I went to China, uh, and I've been back a few times there, was to take a boat ride down the, the Li River, and Guiling. Uh, it, it has the, 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 the amazing uh, artist's uh, uh, depiction of the topography there. If you haven't been there, you think it's just in their mind. In fact, it actually exists with these sugarloaf mountains and, uh, and a meandering uh, Lee River around it with uh, fishermen standing on bamboo uh, rafts with uh, a comrade's uh, at his feet with a ring around his neck so that he goes fishing, but he can't actually swallow the fish himself. Yeah, it's quite a, <laughs> there are a lot of beautiful things in China. A lot of beautiful things in China. 
It sounds like it. Um, that, that's great. And, and maybe uh, one of my favorite things is uh, I'm a bit of a foodie. Um, I, I love Chinese food. Uh, the regional cuisine is um, uh, both very distinct and uh, often delicious. What's your favorite regional Chinese cuisine? Uh, I'm a, I, there's practically no cuisine in China that I don't enjoy. So I'm, okay. I'm I love it. Uh, my favorite, probably when we were doing the deal on the, uh, with Bombardier on the railway cars, we would go to uh, a restaurant where, uh, Deng Xiaoping would have, uh, have dinner. We would try to get his room because we thought we were important if we did that. Um, <laughs> uh, but it was a Citroen, a Citroen restaurant. And it had very, very spicy, uh, spicy food that later became a, a club. And uh, now I think it's been uh, re, uh, redesignated as something else. But uh, uh, the food in China is uh, extraordinary. Uh, I took Barry to uh, uh, a, res- a fun restaurant in Beijing a couple of years ago where we actually helped to make some of the, the food, which was uh, a lot of fun. Sounds excellent. Peter, thank you for being so generous with your time. I really appreciate it. Pleasure. Thank you very much, and thanks to the team uh, behind the scenes. Cheers, everyone. The content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes, and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. 